Welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the IFS, and I'm delighted this week to be joined by Jill Rutter, who is currently at the Think Tank or University Department, I'm not quite sure what it is, EU in a Changing Europe, based at King's College, and is also works at the Institute for Government. Jill is a former employee of HM Treasury. I'm also joined by Lord Nick McPherson, who is also a former employee of HM Treasury, indeed formerly the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury. I should admit that I also worked at one point at the Treasury as one of the directors responsible for public spending. And this week we're going to talk about the Treasury's role in the control of public spending for obvious reasons. Treasury is going to have to do, I think, quite a lot of control of public spending over the next few years, having doled out really rather large amounts over the last year, indeed hundreds of billions of pounds, more than it's ever increased spending by, certainly in peacetime, a deficit bigger than we've ever seen outside of the First and Second World Wars. And as we go forward, uh, demands from all parts of government. Um, so before we get on to today's problems and the uh, issues going to face the Treasury over the next year or two, it might be quite interesting to talk a little bit about the way in which the Treasury traditionally tries to keep uh, control over public spending. So, so Nick, perhaps you could just start by outlining from your experience what, what, what it is that Treasury does during a spending review and how it tries to meet all of the competing demands that are coming from right across government in a way which um, hopefully results in something approaching a rational outcome at the end? Well, I I would um, draw a distinction between what the Treasury wants to do in theory and what it ends up doing in practice. Um, Allocative efficiency um, lies at the heart of a sensible tax and spending regime. Theoretically, the spending review is an opportunity to ensure that resources are allocated optimally and efficiently. Um, But the real world tends to intervene, and um, there is what I would call the tyranny of the baseline. Um, It's a lot easier to add to that baseline than it is to subtract from it. So in the end, what tends to happen, the Treasury starts with lots of good intentions about uh, ensuring that we have uh, spending which um, deals with things like poverty and encourages growth in the economy. But it often ends up just um, obsessing about how on earth is it going to keep spending within a given total. And at that point, um, you get into the art of the possible and you get into suboptimality. I should also say that the Treasury isn't operating off its own bat. The relationship with the Prime Minister is crucial. The Prime Minister and Chancellor together have uh, an extraordinary amount of influence within government. But it helps if you've got a prime minister who deep down believes in public spending control, which actually is pretty rare. Um, I was lucky actually to be at the Treasury when David Cameron was the prime minister, because David Cameron was was 
even more of a subscriber to Treasury orthodoxy than most Treasury officials. But I suspect this spending review is going to be quite a tricky one since uh, the current Prime Minister doesn't seem that interested in spending control. I mean, Paul, if I could just come in on Nick's tyranny of the baseline. I mean, that's in a sense quite a Treasury view that these numbers are just a bunch of numbers in a spreadsheet. Of course, if you're in a department, that baseline is the money you're spending already, money that you're spending on salaries. Remember, huge amounts of day-to-day spending goes on workforce salaries. So you're either going to pay people less, probably not feasible, or cut numbers. That has upfront costs. It's going out in giant transfer payments. It's stuff you're already contracted to make. So the Treasury might say, well, surely you can just lop off a few percentage from your baseline. After all, we want to free it up, reallocate to higher priorities. But it's not as easy as it said. And we've actually seen that this year with this sort of you know aid cut that Richie Sunak has first done. There's arguably a very good case for saying the UK should have transitioned to a lower GNI percentage, if you think that's a sensible way of setting your aid budget, but actually deciding to take out quite a lot of money up front in year and open brackets and pretending you're not doing it for the longer term has huge consequences. And we're seeing that in terms of programs being closed down, making cuts where you can, not actually necessarily where it offers best value for money to do it. So just to say, you know, we're all prisoners of the baseline. Nick is, of course, right at one level. But that's because that's already committed spending and there are real world consequences of doing that. We see that with the Chancellor facing, you know, one of the first issues about to issue in the spending round. He's up to the rate of universal credit by £20 a week. Is he going to take that back? You can say, well, it was always only temporary, but that are pe- that is a whole bunch of people who are sitting there getting one amount of money and the next amount next week they get 20 quid less. And those are the difficult fallout from that. So it's too easy just to see this as about you know very very big numbers moving around on a spreadsheet rather than thinking about what does it actually mean to take those monies out of programs so that's not to say there isn't lots of money that might be better spent elsewhere it's just not uh, not a case of just being able to delete a line and say that's disappeared now it can certainly be uh, re- really hard i mean it, I'd, I'd like to come on to this issue of what should happen now or what might happen over the next year in a minute but we we've all been talking about spending reviews um uh and you know we've all been involved in spending reviews either in in the treasury or i think jill and i probably in treasury and in spending departments as well but probably most most people most of the lucky people listening to this podcast won't themselves have actually been um uh, been involved in 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 a spending uh review and this tends to this is actually a process which tends to absorb a lot of energy um, in Treasury and across government, as you know, people in the various departments put together their case, and uh, uh, you know they 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 put put a lot of um, a lot of evidence together, and um, and they'll uh, their ministers will spend a lot of time making the case as well as the officials. And in the Treasury, there are spending teams that uh, you know, generally small groups of you know, some between ten and twenty people on the whole who are responsible for each individual department, and they'll go through a whole process um, of negotiation. Um, but, but uh, Nick, Jill, what, what's your, I mean, just in terms of giving people a sense of what's going on behind the scenes when we hear 
as we always do through you know through this period, there is a spending review. We just you get a sense of what goes on behind the scenes when 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 a spending review is happening. Well, part part of this is 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 theatre. Um, it's it's important um, it's important for the Treasury to be able to claim that a spending review is going on because that buys it some time. What the Treasury really hates are individual settlements through the year and random spending announcements. It's far easier if you can say, look, um, this will all be sorted out in the spending review. And to do with that theatre, you've got to give departments something to do. Um, so the Treasury invites them to set out um, and fill in lots of spreadsheets um, uh, to set out what what their priorities are, where they want to spend more money, how they can find savings, and so on. Now, needless to say, they all, I mean, unless they're run by a very strange Secretary of State, none of them ever volunteer any savings, apart from what I think were known in the trade as, as bleeding stumps, such as, you know, cutting the basic state pension. So um, they set out their demands. The Treasury then looks at them. Briefly, if you're inexperienced, you get quite depressed because they imply that you're going to spend billions and billions more. Now, sitting in the Treasury, you know that actually you can't spend billions more unless, of course, you, you choose to raise taxes, and that is always an option. Um, so, And then to do with the theatre, there are then bilateral discussions between the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, who is sometimes in the cabinet, sometimes not, with secretaries of state. Um, an innovation from time to time is to try and create more of a collective process. In my view, that certainly helps when you're in real difficulty. If you look at the IMF cuts, and actually the cuts in the early 90s, there was quite a strong collective process. That's That didn't... I, I thought that would come back in 2010. It didn't. Um, I think that's to do with the relative role of the cabinet these days and the fact that at that time we had a coalition. So at that point, actually, much of the dialogue went on between um, the, the, within the so-called quad, which was the um, liberal um, leadership and the, and, and the Tory leadership. Um, so, um, and this goes on and on. In, in the old days, because of inflation, you had to have spending reviews every year. Since inflation was conquered um, in the 1990s, you've actually had plans set out over a number of years, which quite often governments have stuck to. Um, it could be a problem in the coming period if inflation is higher. How credible will those future plans be? And this process probably goes on for about six months or so. Um, you know, there are long silent periods while the Treasury is desperately trying to think of ways to make the numbers add up. A lot of dialogue with number 10 when the Prime Minister sets out, you know, his so-called red lines, i.e. you simply are not going to be allowed to abolish the triple lock. And so it goes on. The, and then um, uh, this gets agreed Pretty much, the budget I think now is back in um, December. The spending numbers get figured, agreed about two weeks out from the budget, and then they're announced with the great fanfare, along with some tax measures. So we're now in June. We're in the foothills of this process. I have no idea how the current process is working. So for all I know, departments haven't done anything. But um, my guess is the Treasury has come up with various things to keep 
departments focused and to try and buy itself some time. And as Jill says, I mean, look, we are dealing in the real world here. It's tempting. Uh, you know, I know I sound like um, the owner of the spreadsheet, which I once was, where you can get overly obsessed with the spreadsheet. Um, and, you know, in the old days, it's no coincidence that what you always ended up doing was cutting investment because no one notes, notices that in the short run. Gordon Brown sensibly separated out the investment budget from the current budget. So classic capital cuts aren't quite so easy to pull off. But at the end of the process, there's always a degree of smoke and mirrors because you can't quite make the numbers add up. So you create side deals and so on. But it's a, um, it's a, it's a long, drawn-out process, which, as you say, keeps a lot of people busy in the Treasury. The spending side of the Treasury is quite big, and in the end, it's what the Treasury is about. Um, it's been doing spending control for the last thousand years, um, sometimes well, generally badly. So the Treasury is very much a believer in this sort of divide and rule that you basically you know, want to do bilateral. So you think in a rational world, what would you do? Uh, you would sit down there, the cabinet would collectively agree as a cabinet, this is the sort of amount, the global spending total. And as a cabinet, we fought on this manifesto. We agree these are our priorities. We agree these are our less important departments. These are the areas we're going to look for reductions. And we'll collectively agree the allocations between departments. But that's not how it works. Um, ministers you know, may just randomly be uh, suddenly, you know, on a Saturday evening, you discover you now have got the magic baton and you are Secretary of State for Health or you are Secretary of State for Education. Uh, your officials expect you to go in and fight for the health and education budget. And indeed, one of the spending reviews I was involved in that went most wrong was when we had a health secretary called John Moore back in the 1980s, who basically just accepted the first number the Treasury offered which he wasn't supposed to do at all. Uh, and that led to a sort of disastrous winter when we had to put more money into the NHS because they couldn't cope with this number that he wasn't supposed to accept. But he'd basically been trying to prove to Mrs Thatcher that he was the next Chancellor uh, parent. So it's quite important that Sajid Javid realises his role in this process. And he's not been through a spending review as Chancellor because actually it's really quite some time since we had a spending review, isn't it, Nick? I think I think your fingerprint's yeah. probably on the last one, isn't it? So, you know, 2015. There was, a, there was a mini spending review in 2019 when yeah. Sajid was... Oh, it's a mini spending there. review. But the but the last maxi spending review, I think, still is a McPherson-Osborne uh, co-creation from whenever they were in power. It's really quite some time ago now. Uh, so I think it's, uh, you know, there's a rational process isn't like that. The Treasury very much thinks we will pick off these individual departments. And then sometimes, as Nick said, when I was knocking around doing these things, Nick said on an annual basis... We used to assume that finally uh, things would go to the star chamber, sort of ministers, you know, judging their colleagues. I think a later incarnation of it, you actually settled early in order to get your ticket into star chamber, which was designed to be a bit of incentive that if you accept the Treasury's deal early on, you get to go and pronounce on your hopeless college and impose more difficult settlements on them. But I think the real joker in the pack this time round is the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister, whatever it is, you know, only has form on uh, signing up to big numbers. He's not got form on taking sort of very difficult decisions, apart from that 
aid cut, which you slightly fear was probably focus group to death somewhere. So I think it's really interesting, you know, because you do need a bit of an access. You know, chancellors know that prime ministers will be nervous about health because they know that comes back to bite them big time. Quite a lot of them like defence. They like sort of big kit, you know, projects. That's okay. That's capital. We have different rules on capital. But I would be quite worried, I think, if I was uh, the chancellor now, uh, about how solid a wall I can form with the prime minister against special pleading by sections of state. And that's what it always ends up with, that the last few difficult departments end up being arbitered, uh, arbitered number 10 uh, between the Treasury and the spending minister when the minister decides. Yeah. And from the Treasury, you want to be able to convey the impression that that is not just the way to get more money for your department, that actually the you know, that that could equally end up rebounding in your face. You might do better to accept the Treasury's perfectly reasonable earlier offer than taking it all the way to number 10. More plausible usually with Mrs Thatcher, maybe than with Mr Johnson. It sort of sounds a little depressingly cynical. Um, you describe the whole process as, as, as theatre um, and... Uh, and, and really stress the sort of political elements of this. I mean, is, is there any, any rationality in the way that things... It, it's, it's partly theatre, and um, just as the annual budget is theatre, it was pretty much invented by Mr Gladstone to give him a chance to give everybody a lecture for four hours. So, but actually, as with Gladstone's budgets, there is something very serious underpinning this, and it comes back to this issue of how... Um, the taxes we all pay are allocated, and um, and it's tempting um, to think that um, all spending is demand led, and politicians are sort of blown hither and thither depending on the prevailing forces at work. But actually, governments um, do make a difference; they can reprioritize. And I think, I mean, look, you know, at the heart of it is actually around how much you consume now versus um, how much you invest uh, with the objective of consuming later. So that is an important choice. There's a choice around how much um, you're basically investing in, in, in the future, not using the narrow term capital, but in things like schools, um, in prevention, health, um, public health programs, uh, and so on, versus sort of instant gratification now in terms of handing out money for old age pensions. And um, these issues are important. And if a government has a set of priorities and adopts some sort of target to spend more in an area, over time, that can make quite a lot of difference. I'd use an example, um, actually, which um, I think Gordon Brown originally prioritised, which was the science budget. And George Osborne came to power and decided he too was going to prioritise science. And um, as a result, as a country, we spend a lot more on innovation than we did 20 to 30 years ago. And that probably has made a difference in terms of our capacity to produce vaccines and so on. Um, so um, it is a serious business. It's just that it's perhaps not quite as serious as um, 
as you think it will be when, as a as an idealistic young Treasury official, you arrive in the One Horse Guards Road and think you really will be helping uh, to determine the big choices in life. And there's quite there's quite a serious uh, piece of work as well that goes on in departments, Paul. I mean, you might want to talk about what you used to do uh, when I think you were at the Department for Education. But departments are very conscious that actually they need to work out how to manage their budgets. You know, they might be spending it through arms length bodies. What do they really need? Where are the pressure points there? Where do they think, you know, when they have the expectations? I worked at the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. We used to be a non-priority-ish department. We were quite, you know, protected then because a lot of our money came through the European budgets in terms of support for farmers. There will be sort of interesting discussions now that that has come back onto domestic budgets about uh, about the degree to which the government's guaranteed protections protect that budget or the degree to which that is now sort of, you know, red meat to the treasury to say, well, actually, you know, we can, uh, we don't have to do, uh, spend quite as much as we did when we were EU members. We'll have to see how that plays out. But we would go through, you know, quite big, you know, trawls through our spending programmes. What did we think we should be dispensing with? And then once you get the sums of money from the treasury, then there's quite a big process of internal allocation of actually when we've got this global figure, some of it is coming with, you know, this is money for this, this is money for that. But the rest, you have a big internal allocation process to make sure you're spending that money properly and to make sure that you don't have to go back to the Treasury. Because one of the real successes of Treasury policy of, uh, you know, the last 50 years has been the discipline of cash limits, which really sort of, you know, does mean that once departments get those spending numbers, by and large, they actually observe them. And that's one reason why you know, we can talk about control of public spending, because public spending is relatively well controlled. You have to go back to the Treasury to ask for more. And that can be a very painful process. We had that uh, when I was working at DEFRA, where we, uh, because we'd made such a mess, I think, of uh, the agricultural payment scheme, we had large levels of disallowance. We had to go back. And we hadn't delivered quite what the Treasury expected. And we had to go through some horrible reprioritizations inside the department before we could actually you know, get any sort of comfort on any of that. So there are serious bits of that process as well, which, you know, in a sense, the Treasury piece of it is the middle part of a process that begins and ends in departments and their wider sort of you know, delivery landscape. So, um, so what? So we're we, we're now coming into. I mean, we're going to have another spending review this year, as far as we as we know. Um, and we 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 know for sure that the Department of Health is going to be asking for a whole packet more money for for, for the coming years, for obvious reasons, given the scale of waiting lists. We know that there's a big demand um, for extra money for for social care. Um, Treasury's already. Um, offered a little bit of money to uh, schools, um, but they're going to be coming back for more. I think we can be fairly sure about that. Local government is struggling. We're probably going to need to keep subsidising the railways more than planned, and so on and so on and so on. Um, Nick, how do you think this is going to play out over the summer? This does feel like a particularly, as you said uh, right at the beginning, a, a quite a challenging spending review. Very challenging, and um, it'll take place against a very uncertain uh, environment for the public finances. You know, on the one hand, the economy is reviving very quickly, so revenues will look very strong. 
um, and that will tempt uh, certainly the occupant of number 10 Downing Street to um, argue, look, um, the revenues are coming in, we can afford to spend more. Now, the Treasury's big worry at the moment is that actually, because of all the spending commitments which have been made during the coronavirus crisis, once the economy gets back onto broad trend, the structural deficit will be significantly higher, and that will that will worry the Treasury. So it, it is going to be difficult. Um, there are a few sort of generic levers you can pull. You can freeze public sector wages, which I think the government has committed itself to doing. I'll, I'll believe it when I see it when it comes to um, nurses and so on. Um, and, you know, you can play around with pensions. You can... Um, transfer payments um, in recent years governments have been prepared to be quite nasty to the working poor um, because they don't seem to vote or no one seems to worry too much about them far more difficult to stand up to pensioners who do vote and many of whom are the government's natural supporters so it's going to be difficult the other problem um, is, is one which has been stored up now for about 10-15 years is that government's Coming back to manifestos and um, priorities, governments have made this big thing of prioritizing certain programs and saying that they are going to protect, um, in inverted commas, um, individual programs, which means that um, they're simply not prepared to cut those programs in real terms. Now, those that includes health, which anyway is always going to rise in real terms, schools, um, defense, um, okay, they made a decision on overseas aid, but they're still stuck with some input target there. And the problem is that that leaves you with very few programs you can actually cut. I mean, the main ones being um, the police. Well, again, I don't think anybody's going to take on the police in the current environment. Um, prisons. I mean, really hard to cut prisons anymore without making them really... Um, even more intolerable to be in than they already are. Um, and then things like the civil service, so that, you know, HMRC or um, the Foreign Office or um, or, 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 or wider, wider sort of narrow departments. And so the, the easy pickings there are definitely gone. And you mentioned local government. That actually paid for quite a lot. I mean, that, that contributed disproportionately to the cuts in the early part of the 20-teens. And that's because local government isn't really represented in Whitehall. And, um, you know, if they end up having to put up the council tax, um, you blame it on the local authority. So I think this is going to be really hard, which is one reason why I would want to have quite a serious debate about taxation alongside the spending review, because, um, uh, you know, Social care comes to mind. We've been we've been debating social care for twenty years. We've had during that period about four reviews, all of which have come up with perfectly sensible proposals, but no one is ever prepared to actually finance them. Well, on the there, I mean, the story there is that it was the Treasury under you and George Osborne that wouldn't finance the, uh, the, the the last set of legislation. Is is that is that right? I mean, is, is the Treasury going to move on social care now? Well, if I was the Treasury, I would be perfectly happy to move, providing the Prime Minister agreed to a sensible way of funding um, social care. 
I mean, I've, I've argued in the past, and I think Jill disagrees with me, that we kind of need some hypothecated tax. But I'm not going to I'm not going to bore you with that now. But I do think um, you can't cannot simply we're going to end up spending huge amounts more on health anyway. We're going to spend more on social care because actually. The one thing coronavirus has told us is we don't treat our elderly very well once they're in a in a care setting. So we are going to have to spend more. But uh, if I was the Treasury, I'd be uh, desperately trying to hang on to, well, if we're going to spend more, how are we going to pay for it? Well, that's, um, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that's a really, you know, I completely agree with what you've just said, I have to say. I mean, it's, it's quite hard to see how we move forward, given all of the constraints that you've just described, Without raising, uh, without raising more more, more money, the, the, the pressures are uh, it, it seems to be just um, in, in, intolerable. Um, otherwise, uh, but that clearly runs up against both the government unwillingness to uh, talk about increasing taxes, and as far as we can tell, um, despite what they might say in opinion polls, uh, not that much keenness among the electorate to see the main taxes. Rise, Jill. Is there a way of um, squaring that circle? Well, not not obviously, but you would have thought that if you uh, if you take the never waste a good crisis or an opportunity, you would have thought that actually this is the moment when you should be having a conversation which says actually what we've seen through the you know last crisis is how much we depend on our NHS. You know, we're concerned about you know retention of staff. We've seen massive backlogs emerge, not just in health, um, but in the courts and you know, various services. We're committed to more police officers. We don't, you know, there isn't a big appetite for cutting back these public services. Indeed, one of Boris Johnson's really singular successes, I think, in 2019 was his ability to run against nine years of conservative austerity. I mean, this was not looking like a government that, you know, was the direct descendant of George Osborne's policies. So I think, you know, there is clearly an appetite for spending on services. We've also seen that ultimately, you know, a lot of interest in resilience, a more resilient state, and the sort of state as the sort of insurer of last resort. When, you know, things get really bad, we need the Treasury to have the wherewithal to do something like the furlough scheme and things like that. Things that, you know, never imagined. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, his wildest dreams, never imagined that the state would effectively be paying the salary of every barista in the country. I mean, it was a really sort of weird time. So if ever you had the moment when you're saying, actually, we do need a capable state that can do these things and look at these services and look at how much we pay some of these people. I mean, that was one of my worries, I think, about the Dilnot report, that its real focus was not on getting loads more money into social care. It was actually on shifting the burden to people who inconveniently drew the bad ticket in the lottery and had to, you know, had to sell out their house to pay for their care though they could, rather than those uh, who managed to die without needing care and therefore could hand it on to their uh, children, which always seemed to me, you know, as, you know, an issue, but a second order issue compared to actually we are just chronically underfunding this service in a horrible way, um, which is my big problem with Dilnot. I think Nick may be right that uh, much as the Treasury purist in me, and it's a bit weird to be more Treasury purist than ex-Treasury Permanent Secretary, but yeah, they sort of promote anyone these days. And Nick used to work for me. Um, I don't like hypothecated taxes in theory, 
but in principle, if I mean in principle, but in if that's what it takes to get a sensible debate about how do we actually garner some of this goodwill towards public service and saying to people, if you really want public services with decently remunerated people with decent terms and conditions that we can retain, things like that, then honestly, we are going to have to pay a bit more for it than maybe we do need to bite the bullet and do some of those things. I think in the debate we had about that, Nick came up with what somebody dubbed soft hypothecation, which is basically we're going to spend all this money anyway, so why not just tell people it's going to the no, NHS? That's, um, that's not, that's as, as, as opposed to uh, a different proposition, which was we'd only put into the NHS what people were actually prepared to pay yeah. for it, and you would do what was called hard hypothecation, which I thought was quite an interesting proposition as well. But I do think we need to be more innovative about that. But the really distressing thing at the moment is that neither... Rishi Sunak nor Boris Johnson seem to have any appetite for doing a bit of pitch rolling on to prepare the ground. Because as Nick says, they're in the foothills of this process, but uh, those foothills will turn into the you know, steep slopes and then the summits quite quickly, because although it sounds like a long time away, you know, November, December are not that far away. And they need to know whether they have those options. The, you know, they will be seduced by thinking, well, we've got loads more money to play with. I mean, the Prime Minister will look at the OBR numbers and say, but Rishi, you seem to have billions more than those annoying people in the OBR told you you'd have. Why can't you just spend this all now on all the things I think are important? And I think it's going to be a very difficult time for the Chancellor because we know that, you know, see where it comes to. But, uh, but we know that one of the initial rationales for Rishi Sunak's appointment was that he was deemed to be able to work much more in tandem with number 10. That relationship may have flipped a bit, but I think it's really, really interesting to see if the Treasury can get any sensible conversation about the size of the ongoing state we want and how we fund it. And then, of course, there are other little things to come, uh, which we haven't even mentioned, which probably come more on the capital side of the budget, though not entirely, like, oh, let's just fund the transition to net zero. Um, that's quite a big additional thing that they've got to look at because it's just going to, they're going to produce a sensible net zero strategy in time for COP26. That has to be um, matched into the spending review. They've got sort of quite big ambitions on other fronts as well. So it's a very, very difficult time, I think. Um, but the really worrying thing is that we're not hearing anything sensible from ministers now other than options being closed off like the triple lock on pensions or the triple lock on tax, you know, we'd take out two quite big areas uh, that you might want to look at, um, which seem in some ways relatively easy. Absolutely. Um, uh, but but to, to tie your hands on both of those really does seem um, to be, well, tying your hands well behind your back. Triple handcuffs, I think, yes. Um, so we, we, we should move towards the, the end. But but Nick, the um, I thought there was a rather... I'd like to come back to this issue of the relationship between Chancellor and Prime Minister, and particularly um, at the moment, and particularly in this world in which I think that the it's not just the Prime Minister, and I think possibly one of the biggest worries for the Treasury must be that the population has now got the idea that um, we can sort of do whatever we want. I mean, because of what's happened over the last year, because of the unprecedented amounts that have been spent without raising taxes. And there was this rather sort of unpleasant, um, uh, um, I don't know if you saw this little um, video clip of um, someone in 
Batley and Spen, where we've got a by-election in a couple of days, um, having a real go at the Labour candidate for saying that there was no magic magic money tree. I think because, and their answer was, well, you know, yes, there is, because lots of what's happened over the last year. So you've got this combination, I fear, of a sort of, as you say, a prime minister who um, wants to be giving stuff away and the population who arguably uh, now think that um, that uh, that money grows on trees because they've sort of been taught that over the last 18 months. I mean, is that, I mean, should, should, the, should the Chancellor be going out there and sort of um, saying more <laughs> to kind of calm things down or is that not feasible? How much does this kind of public perception impact on the Treasury? In, in a sensible world, you would want to generate a debate about this. Um, you know, the, the country is addicted to consumption. The politicians the country elects are addicted to consumption. And what normally happens in the UK is everybody who follows down, goes happily along this path. And then once every 10 to 20 years, there's just an enormous crisis which um, forces um, both the politicians and uh, the voters to reappraise uh, what is a sensible path. Now, we, we haven't had a classic fiscal crisis for some time. The 2008 crisis was a banking crisis, but it did actually result in a bit of a fiscal crisis. And George Osborne and Alistair Darling have been criticised ever since for seeking to um, stabilise the public finances. There is a new orthodoxy in the economics profession that really you can just carry on spending. This will come to a head at some point. It could be next month. It could be in 20 years' time, but it will come to a head. It also relates to the Bank of England and its policy of quantitative easing. At the moment, the government effectively issues debt and the Bank of England buys it. Um, which which makes selling debt very easy, um, and you can sell it very cheaply. Now, a, a few weeks ago, there was a brief scare that long-term interest rates might be rising. Um, the markets seem amazingly sanguine and to believe everything which the Fed and the Bank of England tells them. Now, the Bank of England may be right that we don't need to tighten policy, but I can see a pretty horrible um, denouement where the Bank of England finds itself behind the curve on inflation, has to start raising interest rates. That starts feeding in to our debt interest burden and things get really quite nasty. Now, that, as I say, I don't know when that will happen, but if we carry on as we are at the moment, one day it will happen. And the Treasury... Because the life of a Treasury official is basically, it's like Sisyphus. You spend years of your life pushing this rock uphill. You finally think this time it's different. You get just towards the summit and a rock falls back over you down to the bottom and you start all over again. And um, I can imagine there are quite a few Treasury officials contemplating that as they head through this autumn. Oh, happy days. I think probably on that note, we should draw this to an end. The Sisyphean task of fiscal rectitude, I think, is uh, is, uh, is is a very good way of thinking about the, the, the challenges that we face. As you say, the combination of um, us all obviously wanting our cake and eating it um, and politicians wanting to 
give that uh, to us, and the um, the bulwark of the treasury standing against all of this, um, all of this. Uh, we 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 should probably meet again to talk about errors the treasury has made in doing this um, in the past in, uh, in in both directions. We haven't had a we haven't had a chance to uh, talk about the austerity years and um, you know whether some of that went. Uh, went too far or indeed further back and the uh, lack of investment um, as you were talking about earlier uh, earlier Nick uh, but this is um, you know, we, we we at the IFS will be doing um, obviously a lot of work over the next few months on the spending review and the options that are going to face the Chancellor over the next uh, over the next few years and the scale of the uh, spending needs um, and the continued very high levels of borrowing, which are what will produce these uh, very difficult decisions. So thank you all um, for listening and do look out for that, uh, that future work uh, from uh, the IFS. Uh, and do, of course, tune in to the next edition of the IFS Zooms In. For all of our latest work, please visit www.ifs.org.uk and to further support our work do consider becoming a supporter of the IFS for just £5 a month you can find a link for further information in the episode description